I'm Ruth Sturkey and welcome to Money Expresso, no froth conversations exploring money and life. Money is a story, an energy, a source of happiness and well-being, as well as being a source of fear and anxiety. Many of us struggle to see that money is just a means to an end and that the decisions we make and the habits we build around money can change our life and the lives of others. Why are so many of us inhibited when it comes to talking about money? That's what I'd like to explore. Listeners, my guests from all walks of life share their stories and how money has impacted their journey. My hope is these shared experiences will help you think differently about money and ultimately make better money and life decisions. Hello and welcome to Series 2 of Money Expresso. I hope 22 has started well for you and that you're sticking with any New Year's resolutions. I have to admit I've not made any resolutions this year, which is unusual for me. Instead, I intend to live life intentionally. Let's see how I get on. Now, my guest today could not be a more appropriate ambassador for that intention. Let me introduce you to Sue Baker, OBE. Now, Sue and I have moved in similar friendship groups for the last 15 or so years, during which time she founded and led the hugely successful Time to Change movement, with a mission to end mental health discrimination and stigma, whilst putting people with lived experience, including Sue, at the centre of the movement. The movement's achievements have been truly momentous, with Sue being a regular on radio and TV, whilst mobilising the support and voices of the likes of Ruby Wax, Frank Bruno, Glenn Close, Alistair Campbell, and the princes William and Harry. Sue took the movement global in 2018 and was awarded the OBE for her services to mental health in 2016. The Time to Change movement came to an end in March 2021 as funding came to a close. Now, what makes Sue's story of public service even more extraordinary is that in 2016, she received a terminal cancer prognosis on the same day as, after eight years of trying, her partner Alex was told she was finally pregnant. Sue talks very frankly about her values and how she navigated treatment for terminal cancer while she and Alex prepared for the birth of their first child. She tells us why she returned to work after her treatment and how she now lives her life through a shortened lens. She speaks about the challenges of stepping away from a monthly salary to set up her own mental health consultancy, Changing Minds Global in 2021, and what real success looks like for her. Let's go to Sue. Sue, welcome. It's great to have you on Money Expresso. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me and a happy new year oh my, to you and your team. Thank you very much. I know it already feels like a, we're recording this about a week in um, from, from New Year's Eve. And I must admit, I've started my what I'm calling damp January rather than dry. Um, but enough about that. Enough about <laughs> that. Sue, um, you've got a fascinating story to tell. But would you mind just kicking off by telling us a little bit about your journey to founding Changing Minds globally? Yeah, sure. Um, somebody actually asked me this at the hairdressers yesterday, so I'll give you a, a short potted version. Uh, I, I've, since a teenager, been acutely aware of how people, those of us with mental health problems, are mistreated and harshly judged and um, I think excluded and discriminated against. So there's a there's a big uh, stigma and a social injustice issue around mental health and uh, those of us that are affected by it. Um, and we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. 
Uh, and I just felt that I might have some skills that I could develop to help try and bring about more justice around mental health. And I studied advertising and marketing at university, but I knew from the outset that what I wanted to do was go and work the mind and do something about this grave social injustice. And that was from a pretty young age, really. Um, I had a friend when I was at college who had very severe depression and she was very harshly judged and uh, excluded by other students. Um, my best friend at university live, lives with bipolar and she was very unwell many times. My first partner was very severely mentally ill. I was madly in love, but she was very, very unwell and uh, I had to work with her parents to get her sex a few times. My dad was very depressed because of his stress at work at the Ministry of Defence. He was quite senior. So I think I had it around me. I think probably I'd always struggled a little bit myself, not significantly, but just, just sometimes. And I just thought, gosh, if I can do anything with the business skills that I was developing, I didn't want to sell chocolate bars. I didn't want to sell fast cars. Um, what I always wanted to do and what I hoped we'd studied more of is trying to bring about social change through uh, social marketing and advertising and um, using the skills I've developed. So I then went into private uh, advertising and PR agencies, worked for a local authority in Avon uh, in Bristol when it existed and developed the skills across multiple um, sectors and clients, always with the idea of going into the voluntary sector and working for charities and ideally doing some of that for mind. And, and that's, that's how my journey started. And then I came to London, worked for a children's charity, did a lot of advocacy campaigning around children um, and social justice, and then got my first job as head of media at Mind, just when the policy and services were totally transforming into community-based provision rather than the old institutional um, settings and asylums. And unfortunately, that's where most of the public still had their understanding of mental health was still about lunatics and asylums mm. and people being violent and in crisis. So there was a huge amount of work to do. Um, but I think that's what I was born to do. It's kind of been a driver. Um, and then I worked at mine. Then I was asked to go and apply for a job in New Zealand to take some of the work we were doing over here uh, to New Zealand and learnt more than I took. Came back waited for the relevant job to come up and time to change was the program I was the interim director to set up the systems and work with funders and then ran that for 15 years about destigmatizing mental health across all of society for the last 15 years and the last three years of that was working globally the government asked me to apply for funding to see if some of those methodologies could be adapted working with local charities and local people with mental health problems and I ended up working in four countries in Africa and in India and then the government uh, unfortunately was unable to continue funding the global work of time to change all the work in England. Um, I was a director at Mind running these two programs um, so the redundancies had to be issued and to be honest with you for many years I thought well maybe I should be doing this in a consultancy capacity with the freedom to work anywhere in the world if people approached me and needed support rather than where there was funding and dedicated programs and then you have to deliver what's you know in a restricted grant funded program so that's what i i do now uh, for myself since uh, last april gosh, so gosh. Nearly, not quite a year in but nine months into into the work so i founded the consultancy called Changing Minds Globally. 
and and I, I, what I think is fascinating about your story there is this kind of sense that you you knew you were born to do this job, that it was an area that you wanted to work in, and you put in the necessary foundations, waited for the right opportunity to came up, and then have have made significant change over the last gosh, how many years has it been? 13, 14, 15 years or so, which is some feat. I'm I'm sure we're going to come back and talk more about that um, because there's so much depth within there around, you know, what's going through my mind as a a financial planner is the, the, the effect that money has on people's mental well-being and mental health. But but maybe we can obviously focus on you a little bit, Sue. And I'm intrigued to know, you mentioned your, your dad worked for the MOD. What was your kind of earliest memory of money and what, what was money like growing up for you? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, as you age or as you become a parent, and I've been doing both at the same time <laughs> as an older one. Uh, what do they call it? I think once you're over a certain age, you get called a geriatric mom, which my partner was absolutely appalled at. She was only in her 36 when she, 38 maybe, when she became pregnant, she was called a geriatric mom. As as one matures, should we say, um, in age anyway. Yeah, I think it's made me reflect a little bit more. You start to think, well, where where do your values initially come from? And how much are you influenced by you know your parents values and how they brought you up versus what what you then morph into yourselves and how how much are you you know do you hold on to those values or develop your own so it's a, it's a really interesting question um I think this is as much about money as it's about my values is my parents both worked for the pub for the public sector so my dad was a civil servant he was regional head of HR for the MOD I can't imagine anything more stressful than, <coughs> excuse me, HR at a regional level, mm. working on one side with the unions and the other side with the Ministry of Defence um, and being stuck right in the middle of that. And I, I saw how how stressful that was. I, I, I found out about it later. I didn't realise how many sleepless nights I was having and how stressed he was getting. And then he got very depressed because of it. But he was very much a public servant. Um his dad, my grandfather, was um, deputy, what they'd be called, commissioner of the Met. So he was number two in the Met Police, which was a very big, stressful role. Yeah. Um, uh, but he, again, he worked in public service. My dad did. My mum was a trained nurse, and she went back to nursing when we were sort of at primary school. So, she, and her mother was a nurse. So I think I, I had this ethos of. Uh, trying to do something good uh, public, public mm. sector um sort of background and I actually wanted to be a nurse but I can't stand the sight of blood so that was out the window uh and then I thought perhaps I could be a psychiatric nurse and um so I think I was always thinking public service um but then you know as I said very early on I knew of this grave injustice and wanted to do something about it but uh, so my parents you know, their drive was never to be particularly well off. It was to be able to provide for their family and to, to, to live in, real, you know, okay comfort um, when they retired. So my dad was, they were both quite prudent. Um, you know, they were never lavish. Uh, he might have to have a smart car for work and all that sort of 
hoity-toity stuff about being very smart, being in the army and everything. Um, but there was never a drive to make lots of money. Um, they had to be prudent and careful because they had three children. I've got two brothers. They put us all through um, university. So, you know, they very much invested in us and our welfare and well-being. You know, we had a nice home, but again, it wasn't lavish. We never had loads of... My dad didn't spend a lot of money on gadgets. My mum loved gardening. You know, they weren't expect. We went on holiday to Norfolk to stay in a chalet for two weeks every year. That's the only holiday we ever had. Um, so they had to be careful. Mm. So I think I was brought up with sort of a level of not being lavish, being quite prudent, being sensible. My dad always said to, to us um, all when we started working, you know, get your foot on the property ladder. And we used to think, gosh, how boring. Oh, God, you know, can you shut up saying that all the time? You're like a broken record, but my goodness me, was he right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'll, I'll be saying exactly the same thing to Pip. Um, so get some investment in, in property is what he would always say, because I think they really missed out. when My dad was sent to... Uh, Singapore posted to Singapore and that's where I was born with my twin brother and they didn't buy before they left and in those five years so that was late 60s to early 70s the five years we lived there property prices massively increased and I think they financially lost out big time by not having invested in property before they left the country and I think that was his big regret so perhaps that was his way of uh, trying to make sure we didn't make the same mistakes Mm. So prudent, always prudent, you know, never throwing things away. If they, you know, you wouldn't upgrade anything if it wasn't broken. Um, You know, you'd, you know, you wouldn't have scraps of food, but if there was leftover food, you know, often there'd be a soup or something like that. But I think that was also partly my mum's upbringing. You know, her mum was a nurse. Her dad was off sick. He got ill as a nurse himself using lots of chemicals. So I think they had to be careful. Mm. They, They didn't have a lot of money, whereas my dad's parents had a lot more money. <clears throat> from his senior position um but yeah so careful with money uh, so, i think is something i've carried yeah. on so so the words that are coming through to me are kind of oh, is prudence and careful and and how has, has that played through into how you find you are as uh as an adult and a parent yeah yeah i think uh probably for the last 20 years yes um I think the other thing, in fact, I was talking to my older brother about this because sadly we lost my mum late last year. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry, no, late 2020. Gosh, no, it's already mm. a year ahead, isn't it? Um, and uh, obviously dealing with her estate and everything. And and we were talking about money and risk. He works in finance. <coughs> and um, he, we were saying, you know, my dad was very, my parents were very risk averse. So they didn't invest in other property or, shares I think they had some premium bonds <laughs> but they didn't make the money that they did have work very hard because he was very risk averse mm. um, um and therefore you know they didn't have an awful lot of money when they retired they had his pension which wasn't bad it was more than adequate um so he, he didn't really invest to to make his money work hard so we were reflecting on that recently so I think have I always uh, I haven't always been sensible with money not at all. I built up debts as a student. Um, I didn't really budget properly. Um, I had to work hard for years to pay off that debt. Um, and I really feel for students and parents, <laughs> parents mm. nowadays. Um, so I, I did work hard. I didn't spend lots of money on the things. I just used to go out with friends and 
drinking, good drinking, but never really save any money. And I think probably until I moved to London, I only really cleared my student debts then. Uh, and um, then realised that I really should put some aside and I really should think about buying uh, a flat at some stage. And the trouble was I was not earning a very good wage in, a, in more junior roles in charity. And you can just about get by in London on those mm. salaries. You can't put money aside. But I did take my dad's advice and I bought two streets down from where I was living in Crouch End in North London, knowing that two streets away from the peak of prices that that, you know, the cost of property would bleed down from Crouch End to Finsbury Park, which it has did do and has done. And that was probably the best decision, one of them I've ever made financially, was to completely stretch myself to buy a two-bedroom flat. Um, and I thought, well, two bedrooms means I can rent it out and cover quite a lot of the mortgage. Yeah. Uh, and I can live with a very good friend um, who, that I did several times over in that flat. And that that sort of set me up for the rest of my yeah. adult financial life, really. So he, I did listen to what he'd been banging on about. Um, and I say that to anybody else who was thinking about it after me, who thought I was being a bit silly. I was like, well, you know, what's a mortgage debt to any other debt? It's not, not a debt, it's an investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, my partner left me at the time, partly because of that decision. She thought I was being really foolish. She was a teacher. I was like, no, seriously, a mortgage is, you know, you can, if you need to, you can, it's an investment. You, know, you don't need to see it as a debt like that, but she didn't get it. That's really wise, Sue, actually. And, and because within the financial planning world, we talk about good debt and bad debt. And absolutely, a mortgage falls into that good debt uh, bag. Um, and the, the vision to A, buy a two-bedroom property, which is, I can imagine, was really stretching. And also thinking, oh, okay, maybe Finsbury Park isn't the place, but it will become so. So it does sound like your, your dad would have been dead chuffed with you, I'm sure, for listening to his, his wise words. Yeah, he was alive uh, still. He had Alzheimer's, so but he was still, he was on a, a Araset, obviously, delayed its development. So he was still compass mentors at that yeah. stage and uh, had all the family around to my flat. We had a lovely garden with a, you could hear the church bells and an apple tree. And they were like, is this London? <laughs> and yes, it's, um, I ended up selling it about 10 years ago because the stress of a massive job, mm. commuting to London. Um, my father was very ill, so I was up in Norfolk once a couple of days a week helping my mum care for him. I just couldn't deal with the stress of managing it and I didn't really want to manage my company and I decided just to take my money out of it. I mean, it's worth an awful lot more now. Mm. But I just, for me, then this is the value coming through. My life and my health and my well-being and my relationships are more important than, you know, a huge amount of stress. And I've made some decisions in my life career-wise and therefore financially based on that value. We might get to talk about that later, but... yeah. You know, I've never put money before mental health and well-being. It's so true, isn't it? And, and again, one of the things I often talk to clients about is, should we buy an investment property? Uh, and that is just not an easy investment to hold. That It comes with a lot of strings, a lot of stress, and it is always weighing up. You know, why? What, what is the reason for you actually doing that? So you um, made some sensible early decisions. Your career was starting to pick up. When we've spoken in the past, Sue, because our paths have crossed over the years, 
You reflect back to 2016 being like a bad Hollywood movie for you. And I just wonder whether you would mind just telling us a little bit about what actually happened. And I guess what I'm thinking of here is how the best laid plans can can get kiboshed. Yes. I guess it was a bit like a tsunami, really. Uh, out of the blue, my life and my partner's life and my family's and work and friends was hit by a huge tsunami of cancer. <clears throat> um, so I'll cut a very, very long story short. Um, but the ups and downs of that year, you wouldn't believe if you saw it in a Hollywood movie, you'd think that. So that cannot happen to a couple in the space of nine months. Um, I thought I had fibroids. I was told I had. I wanted to avoid a hysterectomy, so I took very large doses of um, uh, hormone treatments to try and shrink them. Where the clinicians don't know, and they don't believe this is the case, but my partner and I are absolutely adamant that the, the two circumstances, it can't, it can't be circumstance. I uh, got bigger and bigger. In, in five months of annual uh, sorry, monthly depot injections. I was as big. My torso was as, as extended as a full-term pregnancy. I was absolutely massive. I wasn't really a, drinking very much. You know, I wasn't enjoying a beer or a glass of wine, which is not me. Um, I looked quite waxy. I was losing weight because I wasn't enjoying food. And they're all classic things to look out for in hindsight, um, you know, if you might have cancer. But because I was told it was something else uh, and nobody, nobody was monitoring me properly locally. So primary care, unfortunately, saved my life many times, but absolutely did not look after me properly. And that's another story. So what, what happened was we had actually just gone on holiday in February to Cambodia. And we were even like taking the night coach from one place to another up and down, you know, roads with great big holes in them and bouncing up and down on the on a flat bed in an overnight coach. I was like, oh, this is quite painful. And then in the back of a tuk-tuk going down the alleyways <laughs> to our accommodation, again, never lavish, but I was like, oh, boom, this big lock. I was like, oh, my God. And I said, what are you moaning about? I was like, it's actually quite painful. I couldn't lie on my front for a massage. And I was like, and if you looked at me sideways, I had skinny legs, which I'd never have. I had no pots and no hips, and this great big lump at the front. And I clearly wasn't well. But again, not being picked up, not being monitored locally. And we got back from Cambodia and about a week later, I could not get rid of, because I, I had no pain, with, which is often the case with cancer. I couldn't get rid of this pain one weekend. It was a griping pain in my, in my abdomen. And I thought, I don't know what that is. And the fact that Nurofen, which always works for me, wasn't masking it. So I ended up going into A&E because it was a weekend thing. And that was the start of a hideous year. I was then kept in. They did scans and two days later they said, we're going to wait for your partner to come in. Alex said, we had one final um, shot at a pregnancy um, uh, through a clinic. We'd been trying for eight years. We had one go left and about three weeks before, two weeks before we, we went into hospital. So it must have been back from Cambodia, just, just back from Cambodia a few weeks before. And Alex, we went to the clinic and did it and thought it's not going to happen. Alex has had lots of miscarriages was obviously we're not going to be parents sat down on the bed with a consultant two hours before the consultant came in Alex texted me said I've had a pregnancy done the pregnancy test I'm pregnant 
I'm coming into the hospital now to meet the consultant who wouldn't speak to me until Alex was there. And he said, I think you might have cancer. I think it might be a rare type of cancer called sarcoma. Um, it's hard to treat. Oh, shit. It looks like we might be parents if a mis- obviously if Alex maintains a pregnancy. So this within hours we were on this roller coaster, parallel roller coaster of Alex desperately trying to hold on to the early stages of pregnancy, which is not miss. And literally across the corridor from the ward I was in was the early pregnancy unit. So she was very closely monitored and supported by them, thank God. So that definitely uh, helped. Whilst I was in hospital at the start of a hideous journey, um, my tumour was four kilos, so it was heavier than most babies are born. It was a foot long. They said if they, I mean, I was sent home for a month to wait for surgery, uh, which was a big mistake because I started throwing up. I couldn't eat a grape. I couldn't keep down a grape, and I was getting more and more severely ill. Um, and in the end, they said, you know, if you if you can't cope at home, I have to bring your surgery forward. And they said if they hadn't have operated, then I would have been dead five days later. The tumor was so massive it strangulated my bowel. I could have told them that. But <laughs> listen. And if they'd known what was in there, they wouldn't have operated, and I would have been dead. So I was like, "What? Well, I don't really need to be told that." So I had a massive tumor. It was um, a uterine sarcoma. Sarcoma is quite rare. There's 80 subgroups. Uh, it's a it's a cancer of the soft tissue. But uh, the hospital in Margate QEQM saved my life. They did operate. I had to go into an induced coma because my heart started to play up during the surgery because I was very very poorly, obviously. Uh, so I went into a coma for a few, induced coma for a few days. Poor Alex, very early pregnancy, all the risks of, of miscarriage, desperate. You know, I sat there comatosed, lying there, and then they sat me up on, on all the machines. I've never seen somebody in ICU myself. Um, they didn't know if I was brain damaged or not. They couldn't tell her that because I couldn't communicate. So she had all that stress. Um, and then... Uh, yeah, so then I came out of say, you know, had a lot, a lot taken out. Um, uh, the prognosis was not good. Um, and the cancer came back. They spotted um, a small tumour within five weeks of surgery. So it was pretty horrific um, mentally and physically. Uh, but then I had treatment at the Marsden. Incredible um, treatment life-saving treatment they put me into very heavy brutal chemo they kept saying uh, so I was given sort of nine to months to live if I was lucky but what they were doing with the chemo was just buying me time so that you know hopefully I'll be around to see our child born and they had to say to Alex you need a, by the way you know in one of our big meetings you need a plan b um we suggest you line up another birth partner just in case Sue's not here so yeah, and then we had the 20-week scan. We were overjoyed. I think it was 20, not 16 weeks. We knew we were having a girl. She was healthy. There was nothing coming up on the scans. But because I was so weak and couldn't walk to save time and energy, the same day we went to the hospital in Canterbury for Alex's scan, and that should have been one of the high, highest points of our lives. Two hours later, we were in the local hospice talking about how I wanted to die and um, you know what inpatient care they had, literally two hours after having the scan. So... You know, the, the parallel was so close and the roller coaster was so, you know, the highs of the pregnancy and the depths of the lows. But I had very heavy chemo. I had sepsis in the middle of it, rushed into hospital, nearly died then. But I think we all thought that was me on my way out. They didn't tell us that most people don't survive that chemo regime. 
most people die from the chemo if they don't die from the cancer but I did make it through and uh, carried on with a lower dose they dropped the very heavy drug and finished the treatment amazing support from my partner my family my friends obviously I didn't work for eight months and um, I went back to work in October and two weeks later our daughter was born so and ever since things have just shrunk and been stable with nothing there touch wood so I've been back at work and being a mum for the last five years so it's five years we didn't think we'd have and we live you know I'm scanned every six months um it's terminal yeah I'll never be clear of it which is strange but having to live with a terminal illness lots of people have to learn to live with that and a big question mark over the time you have left um but I'm, I'm very, very, I feel now very lucky and very blessed and very grateful to the NHS and my friends and family, particularly to Alex, who was my rock. Um, so, yes, that's, that was 2016. And then I was awarded an OBE uh, just before the end of 2016 um, for services to mental health. So it was, a, it was a most extreme year you could possibly imagine. Craggy suit, that, that is... It is like a bad Hollywood movie, isn't it? I mean, I can't, I can't even begin to understand what it must feel like, be like, to live through a year of finding after eight years of trying for a pregnancy that your partner is finally pregnant and you've been given a terminal cancer diagnosis. And with all the treatment that then followed it, that is, gosh, I mean, words, words, as you can tell, are failing me about quite how difficult that must have been. And you, at the end of it, you started to recover. Your daughter Pip was born. And then you went back to work. I did, yes. And actually, I did a very interesting interview, a very challenging interview. He was a very challenging journalist, but that's, that was that's his job, with some HR magazine. And he was like, why on earth did you go back to work when you had still had a terminal diagnosis over your head and you didn't know how long you had and you just had a daughter? And I said, because I, I didn't know how long I had. Um, and I couldn't just sit at home <clears throat> and think, well, I'm just going to wait for the cancer to grow again and go into treatment and or die. Mm you have to get on with living and there's something about you know yes if I needed treatment which was expected in three to six months time I'd have to go back into treatment and and you know if I wasn't if I was still alive multiple courses of well only so many types of chemo rounds could I have had maybe two or three were potentially available but I was like well then I have to do something in the interim but also I needed to go back to work not just because and it, it was good for my well-being and self-esteem. My job wasn't finished. I still wasn't done on the stigma work. I still, I thought, no, I haven't done what I'm here to do. And also financially, you know, you have sick pay for so much time and mind were amazingly um, generous with that. Their policies are very good. But I needed to start earning again because Alex was on maternity leave. So neither of us would have been earning. So there's multiple reasons to go back. Um, but this guy just couldn't get it into his head that with all of that that's happened, I didn't just want to stay at home and be with my child and wife. I was like, well, there's lots of reasons why I couldn't or I didn't, should I say. Um, 
but yes and then thinking oh gosh hang on a minute it's six months and nothing's grown and in fact everything's shrunk and calcifies and then but imagine if I'd spent five years not working just waiting yeah <laughs> you just don't know you just have to make the best choices with the information that you have which isn't always all the information and I didn't know what the future held so we live very much the way I describe it is you kind of I think maybe many people with terminal illnesses that you have to just live with a shortened horizon so you don't plan too far ahead we also don't waste time we kind of then went a bit full throttle like seventh gear into life and the things that we wanted to do we got on and did so we traveled with Pip when she was a baby uh, we had her blessed with a Maori christening in New Zealand with our best friends and um the Komato, the sort of tribal leader of our charity. We did that because we thought, well, we might not have much time. So mm -hmm. it was only six months old. I was offered work in Sri Lanka. We took her there. So we kind of thought, gosh, if we've only got six months to a year together, let's just do the things we want to do. Um, we bought a property uh, and did that up for Alex to have an income from an, from an Airbnb. We thought, well, you know, she'll need to be at home more. I might not have a big job in the future. I might not be here. So how do we make an investment for the future so that did inform some financial decisions as well yeah um and yeah so we and i think now we're trying to slow life down we keep saying that and our friends always laugh in our faces <laughs> but we are trying to slow life down you know these are precious years for anyone mm. and for us i think they just feel a bit more precious but we kind of live in a kind of right let's look ahead we do have the luxury now we give ourselves the luxury of being able to think not just months like two or three months ahead but we think right maybe six months ahead now we, think. we don't think years ahead mm -hmm. even though we have to think about that financially and we have to think of Pip's future as a when she becomes a young woman and an adult so we do think like that now we have a child but we don't plan things in advance like holidays years in advance or you know in six months time we're gonna definitely go here and do that we we just can't risk doing that um but financially we have to plan and I've obviously started my own business and had to think about my career <coughs> and if things change they'll have to change again and and that um shorten horizon i i heard um somebody saying on a podcast i was listening to the other day um uh the 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 quote that um we all have a terminal uh diagnosis mm. but for most of us we don't know when that's going to be or we have an expectation that we're going to be 85 or whatever the age might be. And the uh, person on the podcast was saying that that informs how he therefore lives every day, just in the knowledge of that. Mm. And, and one could say that that sounds like a really positive thing to say or mm. a bit of a glib thing to say. Um, it's absolutely your reality and you've been shunted into that way of thinking. But it does strike me that what you and Alex and Pip are doing is making sure that every day counts. Is, is that, is that a, a reasonable observation? Is that what it feels like for you? Yeah, it's a very astute observation. <laughs> yes, I think that, you know, we don't take time for granted. Mm. And I'm sure that there are many people who have a terminal illness hanging over them or or have been given a shortened lifespan you just don't and actually none of us should because mm. none of us know what's around the corner none of us do but there seems to be this which isn't a bad thing but the way we are as humans our psychological makeup 
And how this starts, I don't know. Is it genetic? Is it nature nurture? I don't know. But we seem to be, as a human species, we seem to live our lives without that awareness that we're immortal. Mm. We seem to live our lives as if we have forever and that we're all immortal. You know, none of us are going to be struck down. But all the stats would tell you the opposite. How many people get cancer? How many people... Um, you know, there's there's loads of figures like that, and not you know, it, yes, that might be there might be an average life expectancy, but that is an average. Mm. Um, and it, I would never have thought about this until I was hit by cancer. But I I think it is helpful to think, gosh, what am I going to do with my so many years working or so many years parenting, and what happens if I don't make it to sixty? Mm. Uh, do I want to make it to eighty? Does it matter if I do? Does it matter if I don't? How do I live my best life? Yeah. with whatever time I have and what's going to make me and my partner and my family happy mm. and I guess you know we had to talk about that recently like did I want another big senior exec role in a charity or did I want more time at home and lots of us have been questioning that through the pandemic and related lockdowns and restrictions what matters in life and a lot of us have had a taste of a lot more time at home mm. for some people that's not been good or good for their relationships for others it has and I think it was a parent of a, of a young child and somebody I've traveled a lot I commuted a lot I wouldn't I'm not willing to do that anymore <clears throat> that's not what matters and you can get sucked into that and having a big salary it's important for me to earn a certain amount um I'm the major breadwinner but obviously Alex earns as well but it's so important for me to be here with this precious time that we have. Yeah. And perhaps that's helpful for many of us to think, you know, rather than live and think you've got decades ahead, is to think, well, let's think in a couple of years at a time. You know, it's good to plan further ahead financially, but don't take it for granted that you're going to have, you know, your physical and mental health to, to enjoy your retirement. I think I think I think that's uh, such a such a strong message, isn't it? And um, one that we should all bear in mind. And I, and I think thinking about so often over the years when I've spoken to clients, and we all do it. I'm guilty of it as well. We say, "Oh well, I'll do that when." And <laughs> one of the things I've started to realise as I edge into my mid later fifties. Blimey, where how did that happen? Is that you know the thing is I'm never going to be any younger than I am today. So what the hell am I waiting for? Um, and you, you've my grandma. It's hilarious, isn't it? But, but there's something healthy in that as well. Yeah, you know, it's about finding the balance, mm. isn't it? Yeah, <clears throat> and rather than you have to do everything now because you know, gosh, when you become a parent. You know, you used to be able to do the DIY jobs, all the things on your to-do list. You could do them within a week. And it'd take about six months now just to get one small bit of DIY yeah. done or yeah. one of those things on your list like t- tax returns or sorting <laughs> out, you know, sorting out your old photos or something. It just takes a year, you know, it just mm. takes forever because you just don't have any time. Mm. But um, my uh, my grandmother used to make me laugh. and She had this bookcase with lots of interesting books and she was, you know, a bird watcher and she read a lot. Used to love bird watching where she lived in North Norfolk, but she would always be like, "Well, I'm going to read those books when I'm old," and that's what she used to say when she was in her mid eighties, which is quite. And she did. She read, you know, yeah. read lots of magazines and read books anyway. But I thought, well, that's actually quite. She never thought of herself as maybe that's the thing. Mm. Don't think of yourself as old, but it's not that she wasn't doing other things. And uh, I know uh, one of the other things I remember her thinking about money and values was she. She used to say, "Look." in her Norfolk accent, 
shrouds don't have pockets, mm. which is, yeah. it wasn't so much about, it wasn't about spending your money um, because you can't take it with you. But in her interpretation, it was like, well, don't just work to earn money and not live because you can't, you can't take it with you. So to live, you know, focus on how you live your life more than building a lot, up a lot of wealth. Um, and I guess, you know, her value was very much serving her community right till the end. She volunteered at the cathedral. She was always doing public good and public service and volunteering after retiring from nursing. So um, I guess that stuck with me as well. But then when you become a parent, you're like, well, of course, you do need to provide and you want to provide beyond your life, <clears throat> which for me is more, you know, much firmer in my near vision than perhaps most people's is so tell me. I think if I'm not here you know next year or in five years time I want to leave you know a, enough funding for Alex to not stress about having to get a job and not be here for Pip as much as she would need to be if I wasn't around and that's probably too heartbreaking to talk about and think about too much and and one of the things that I'm interested in Sue is the you you spoke about being made redundant from mind and having to leave the time to change program that had had such a massive impact on helping to reduce I don't think it's gone yet but the, the stigma around mental health at least get people talking and you move from being a director of a really large organization and as we were speaking at the start of the podcast before we started to record about having teams of people to help you with your tech or presentations or whatever it might be and you chose to become a consultant. How did your um, how did money and your need or desire to um, uh, provide for your family factor into the decisions around setting up your consultancy? And how did you actually fund yourself, self setting yourself up as a as a consultant? Uh, yeah, uh, it was a big factor, <clears throat> was sustaining, you know, a, uh, adequate level of income with, and I'd never, I'd never, I mean, I've worked for an agency for a couple of months when I came back from New Zealand between posts, but I've never been without, uh, you know, the security of a monthly income, salaried income. I had thought about this years ago, actually, before I was ill and before Pip was born, uh, about maybe setting up a consultancy for social change. Uh, I'd worked for a couple of freelance before, as I said, but um, but I think the the work I was doing was still, you know, a job that needed to be done. Um, I loved the role that I had, and even though I wanted to have the freedom to work with multiple clients around the world um, and perhaps do some some other projects as well, uh, I think. Yeah, the, I still had an amazing job and I still had the security of income. And I loved being part of the big organisation that Mind was becoming. It was getting bigger and bigger because as we addressed stigma, more and more people were needing services and more and more people were willing to fund expansions of our work. So it, it felt like we were kind of reaching a near peak. We were, you know, the whole issue was getting a lot more attention. So I think... I would have found it really hard to leave at that stage and not be part of the organisation and the massive growth and development that was happening in the sector. Um, and I just wasn't ready. I wasn't leave, ready to leave the Mind family. I 
I've been there. I've actually worked there for 25 years um, between two roles. So it was a big part of who I was. Um, so it wasn't an easy decision to take the redundancy. I, I could have looked for a, another um, relevant role within mind and pursued that, but it wouldn't have been as satisfying. Um, so the main, you know, I liked the prospect of setting up as a freelance, basically. Um, uh, and a couple of things helped make my mind up. One was that I had, um, uh, I went on the Macmillan website and thought, gosh, well, how do people who are freelance that have cancer, how do they how do they cope? What sort of insurances do they have? So I then secured life income protection, sorry, insurance, um, which I hadn't had before, um, uh, that covers all other health issues for a year, but after a year will also cover my cancer if I don't make a claim. So that gave Alex and I some security that within a year, my cancer would be covered and I'd have some income protection up to a certain level. Because um, that was the problem, we would both be self-employed. And I also already had some contracts agreed that would provide me with a set amount of income for the first year. So a couple of contracts were already under my belt. So I, I wasn't starting without any income. Um, I obviously had the redundancy payment, which is there if I need it. So I thought, well, if I don't get enough work, I've got that to help me through the first year. Um, and there haven't been a lot of overheads. I mean, you know, working at home, which most people are doing anyway, um, is working remotely. I, you know, I don't have those overheads. A lot of the consultancy is um, about helping develop strategies and then implement them to address uh, mental stigma and improve mental health literacy, which because of the pandemic, lots of the international health and mental health leaders have mental health and stigma on their radar now. Um, so there's a lot more interest coming in from very different parts of the world, which is keeping me pretty very busy this year and yeah. hopefully well beyond it. So I think it was a risk, but it, I, I judged that I, I already had sort of half my week filled for the year and um, I had some initial um, contacts and discussions that I've pursued this year and next year is looking even more busy and, and then I bring in other people I've worked with who have also gone freelance so I have a kind of uh, I don't have a dedicated team but I bring other people whose work I already know the quality of their work and they come and freelance on the contracts with me so I have a sort of semi-remote uh, freelance team around me so I pull in people who've got the skills that we need and then work with local organizations and governments and funders around the world so it's lovely to have the freedom um to be able to work on contracts and clients with work that i think is absolutely needed and is incredibly rewarding yeah so, yeah. so i'm kind of doing everything i love i'm more hands-on i'm strategic level but i'm more hands-on than managing lots of people being involved with executive decisions of a big organization i'm doing the stuff I absolutely love day in, day out now. Brilliant. So it's going well and you're enjoying it? Yes. Yeah, I'm loving it. I thought I would miss being part of a massive organisation, to be honest. I don't. So I'm freed up of a lot of the uh, a, a lot of the nuts and bolts of being a senior exec that, that bog you down. Yeah. And Good. I love the creative stuff. I love developing strategies, working with local organisations and different ministry people in very different contexts. Mm. And then working a plan up together, helping build up their skills and their tools so they can then take that forward and implement it. But working collaboratively together in all kinds of settings around the world, because mm. mental health and stigma is present in all of our societies. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah so i'm actually starting to worry about how much i can actually do next year and i think i might have to give contract other people or i might move into a different model yeah. in another year where i might actually set up an organization and um sort of semi-employ other people so i i don't know i'm not too interested in running an organization i'm much more interested in doing the work so i'm not quite sure whether i stay a sole trader or become more of a an agency but I don't really want to run an agency I want to do the work. It's an interesting dilemma isn't it and I think what many successful consultants and entrepreneurs find is is the the love of the work and then if, if that kind of is successful inevitably that leads into the difficulty of then having to consider employing or managing other people which is very often not the thing we all love doing <laughs> which leads me beautifully to my question which is around success what does real success look like and mean to you, Sue? Oh, gosh, yes. That's an um, interesting one, isn't it? And I, I would answer that differently now, mm. um, having learned the hard way about getting the right balance in life, because I worked like a dog mm. on the Time to Change programme. I worked ridiculous hours. It, you know, I, I could neglect. I neglected my health. Um, Alex, my partner, worked hard commuting into London, working in advertising. So, uh, and... Uh, we'd lost my father um, 10 years before and my, we hadn't moved my mother down who I then kept, we then cared for in, for the last three or four years. So I was, I was able to dedicate myself to work. Mm. Um, and then 2016 hit and my mum moved down in the same year and then she became ill in the last sort of two or three years of life. So I, uh, I've learned a lot um, since that year and, uh, and then becoming a parent. Um, Success, I think, I think it's about um, living by your values. Um, and for me personally, that means ensuring that I ha have joy and uh, happiness in my personal life. So with my partner and my child, my family and my friends that make me very happy it can be stressful at times, but now need to make sure that that isn't squeezed so it's not enjoy you don't get joy and enjoyment that is often a challenge just making sure you have enjoyable stress-free time um so it i i feel great success when we actually just really have a nice day out or a couple of hours or you know or you have time with friends and you just feel that joy mm. that joy of spending quality time together mm. Um, and being present people talk about that a lot but I've had to learn that the hard way being present not so distracted by work stress or other life stress but but being properly present and that's an ongoing um, practice mm. often leaves my way and aren't present so that that is the joy of that quality of time is I would say that's huge success and more important than anything mm. and I'd say a B to that success is hoping to achieve some social good um, through the work that I do it's not about having a successful business or earning lots of money it's I'm hoping that the I mean obviously I want to earn an income but I'm hoping that the work I do and the skills I have can help change societies for the better uh, and that that has a positive social impact so that's the other so and I guess the third thing which is linked to the first thing is that I hope the time I have with my family helps produce a balanced happy little person 
That's certainly all of three of those things sound like real success to me, Sue. Thank you very much for, for sharing that and very little to do with, with money, um, which, yeah, I, I think I've always felt in my, in my core. Um, Sue, you've been incredibly generous with your time and um, I'm, I would just like to ask you two final questions. And I apologise because there's so many other things that we could have spoken about and I'm sure if I was listening to this conversation, I'd be going, oh, Ruth, why didn't you ask Sue about A, <laughs> B and C? So apologies to our, our listeners. Um, maybe we'll have you back when you've uh, had your consultancy going a little bit longer to see how it's going. Um, but on a slightly frivolous note, and I love to ask this question, so forgive me, but what's been your best buy in the last year or so for less than £30? Oh, God. <laughs> this is the stinkiest question, isn't it? <laughs> um, I, I do, it's so funny, isn't it? I don't actually buy a lot of I don't, and, and that's back to my upbringing, and I think. Yeah. So I don't really, I'm terrible with technology and gadgets and things, so it's probably because I'm not interested in them rather than a value base around them. But I would probably say, oh, my gosh, I can't choose one, Ruth. I'm going to have to go for two. Go on, then. <laughs> we'll let you. It's really random, but um, number one, because of the last year and we have been doing up a property that we just moved back into and it's been mega stressful and ridiculously and never again I'm saying that record never again will I do up a home a house that will be our home and I don't want to ever do a whole building renovation for the rest of my life as long as I live. um so uh we we've been living and we rented a small flat in Margate for a while and we were pinged so we had a semi-imposed isolation period mm -hmm. in the heat the summer uh, stuck in a little flat in margate and not able to go out and i had bought a blow-up sofa bed <laughs> just a blow-up sofa for the beach which we didn't actually ever take to the beach but we had a car park and an old-fashioned drying area and we put the sofa out there considering we were locked in with a five well four-year-old at the time and we had a pretend couple of days on the beach and i think that kept us relatively sane through a 10-day lockdown and it was about 30 pounds <laughs> and we're going to put it in our garden but that allowed us to just chill out pretend we we're on the beach you know we had however many days left and i'm sure lots of people struggled in in lockdown we didn't have any outdoor space apart from the car park so we sat in the car park and made it made a pretend beach did you have sand that, that, did you have yes, sand? yes oh i love it brilliant <laughs> yeah so i think that was probably the best and most random purchase and the second one is probably the best pair of jogging pants oh um, usually the elastic's too tight or I don't like the material or the, I don't like flares. We've got to have cuffs at the bottom so they don't trip on them. And I, oh my gosh, I've got a brilliant pair in the sale and I absolutely love them. I don't work in them. I have to sort of dress up in order to perform, which seems ridiculous, but that's how I, how I work. Um, but as soon as I'm finished and working at home, I'm like, right, uh, jeans and a smart top off jogging bottoms on and that's my switch off and I love those jogging bottoms and do these <laughs> jogging do these jogging bottoms actually see any jogging Sue or are they <laughs> your comfort yes. well no they no they are my chill out end of the day jogging bottoms they're not actually jogging bottoms um no I do I, I do it. run for my physical and mental health mostly for my lungs but more for my mental health yeah uh I've just started running again as of the day before yesterday so that's been a joy i haven't been able to run for a couple of months yeah but so yes no not actual 
there's, there's slogging bottoms, I suppose. <laughs> but it's good to know you're in comfort of an evening. I love that. Brilliant. Thank you. And uh, um, two, two excellent um, best buys. Thank you for sharing those. And finally, <laughs> Sue, I, I, I'm, I'm a, this, this is, I'm sure, going to resonate with you. We always like to leave our listeners with a kind of what I call a money pearl of wisdom. And with you and your life experience, what would your money pearl of wisdom be? Probably my father's, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this, I don't know the age of your listeners, but, you know, to pass it on to your children, that, you know, without overstretching yourself, but as soon as you can squeeze to that point where you can invest in property, um, however small and however, however or large, but... Um, is to encourage young people to do that. And I know that's very hard right now with property prices, especially in London and the South East, mm. uh, but hard in the South West and other parts of the UK as well. But uh, if you can support your children to do that, I think that's, you know, and our parents did help us a little bit yeah. um, with a bit of my deposit because I was on such a low income for a charity. But I think that's really important. And to have that security has, has altered our our life as a family, that one decision. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which came from my father and I guess the second one is um is to is to yes invest wisely I mean I'm glad I took a workplace pension out um before that we had to but I I did that from quite a young age and mine had quite a generous pension scheme and that gives me the security that even if I'm not here Alex will inherit a certain amount of income yeah. and if I'm given which I was before, but if again I'm given a very short prognosis, um, I can take it all out yeah. and give it all to Alex tax-free. So, yeah. you know that gives me great comfort. And I keep saying to Alex, "Got to stop worrying." Yeah. If that awful nightmare happened, I would take out my pension, and that would keep you very comfortable for the rest of your and Pip's lives. So, yeah, you know that that gives us great comfort as a family. So, very boring things, but I would say invest in, in yeah. property yeah. Uh, if you can, and you know, don't don't take your life for granted. So, yeah, yeah, brilliant. And, and we, you, you've been really good value, Sue. We've got two best buys, and we've got three money pearls of wisdom. So, thank you so much. It's been incredibly generous of you. And just just finally, is there anything? Uh, that you have seen from your experience as a mental health professional around the stresses and worries that money can add to an individual's uh, well-being that that you've observed that could be avoidable for all of us? There are many detriments to mental health and well-being, and one of them is finance, you know, if you've got an insecure job situation or you haven't got an income or you have zero contract hours um, or you've been made redundant, um, you know, or you've had to live on benefits for a long time, obviously not having um, enough income mm. is is a great stressor mm. to your mental health and well-being. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, we know that if you look at the sort of suicide stats and what people will say who've had suicide ideation so i.e thought about 
suicide or how they might do it. Um, don't want to say anything too triggering. Mm. But we know that financial worries or, and debt are a major factor in people thinking about mm. whether they can carry on with life or are they letting their families down. You hear so many stories from men in particular with the pressure of thinking they have to be the breadwinner and the big macho men and you know not ever telling a soul about their financial worries or struggles or debt or <coughs> some of it's not about debt <coughs> or worried about their jobs <coughs> and thinking that they can't go on yeah so absolutely money is instrumental in health and mental health and well-being you know you can't extract it mm. and you know, if you can't feed yourself mm. you, you will struggle physically and mentally absolutely um, if you're in debt, you'll struggle mentally and physically. And so the main main thing I would say is um, if you are in a position where you're worried about your future financially or your ability to provide for your family, um, do not struggle alone. Um, speak to someone. There's a money and mental health advice line. There's an organisation that can provide support. Um, if you Google um, money and mental health advice line, you'll find you'll find it. Um, there's funding for the organisation that provides financial um, support um, or at least advice and support. So, you know, there are ways to get out of even the trickiest situation with debt. It's not worth losing a life over. Absolutely. And I think it's really important that people not just open up about their psychological mental health struggles if they are worried about money either get the mental health support or get the financial support but this advice line can obviously help you with both can refer you for help for any mental health issues caused by financial stress and strain but also help you find a, a plan and a way through um, if you've got debt or any other worries so it, it's not worth losing a life over and there are ways to cope and get through it so you're not alone and it's a very common problem yeah so i'd encourage yeah. anybody to reach out and get help and support thank you, you. know nothing is worth losing a life over thanks sue that's that's brilliant advice to to round us off with which only leaves me to thank you ever so much for all of your time today and for for telling us your incredible story and um like just Keep well, Sue. Keep doing what you're doing and um, all the very best with changing minds globally. Thanks, Ruth. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, sorry for rabbiting on, but yeah, could have, not at all. I'm sure we should probably do it over a beer when we can. Let's do that. I shall look forward to it. Okay. Okay. Happy New Year. Happy Good New Year to everybody. you, Sue. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Blimey, that's quite a story, isn't it? I can't even begin to imagine quite what it must have been like to have been in Sue and Alex's shoes back in 2016, living with that roller coaster of emotions. Um, a truly gratifying story of how life can change on a sixpence. Just a quick uh, risk warning from me as a pension and financial planner. Um, in the event, perish the thought that you're suffering with ill health around pensions do take advice before making any decisions because there can be a multitude of options and Sue made reference to one that, that she might choose to do should her cancer return. Um, 
But looking forward, um, my next episode of Money Expresso is out in a fortnight or so. And I have a fantastic guest that I know you're going to love listening to. It's an amazing woman called Claire Fielding, who is the founder and managing partner at Town Legal. And she has a fascinating story to tell about her life. So please do join us then. In the meantime, stay well and enjoy life. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast to subscribe, rate, and give a five-star review for Money Expresso. Apparently, this helps more people to find the podcast so we can help more people think differently about their money and their life. If you've got any thoughts, comments, or questions on any of the matters discussed, or life and money generally, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Ruth Sturkey. Of course, the conversations with my guests are not intended as advice. My intention is to merely share our guests' money and life experiences to entertain, educate, and inform you. Any form of investing involves risk, and the value of your investments may go down as well as up. So please do speak with a financial planner before making any investments to make sure they're the right ones for you. Thank you.